Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Today's episode is brought to you by Surviving Y2K. Okay, Amy, did you ever listen to that podcast, uh, Missing Richard Simmons? I absolutely did. I went to miss, I went to a Richard Simmons aerobics class more than once, so I was definitely <laughs> invested. Well, this is the same team, and they are now doing a whole new story. It is about Y2K, the Armageddon that never happened. Uh, so we're going to get a deep dive into what was going on. Do you remember Y2K? I mean, Absolutely, I, re- I remember Y2K, yeah. Taking that- money out of the bank, computers weren't going to work. It was going to be crazy. Absolutely, absolutely. We were terrified. Well, it's so funny because if you're, I mean, right now, if you're 18 years old, you don't remember Y2K at all. Uh, so basically, people thought the world was going to end because computers couldn't handle flipping to, uh, to 2000. And this podcast follows an evangelical family preparing for the apocalypse to coders who fix the millennium bug. And you can follow all of their stories as it leads up to New Year's Eve 1999. And you will find out what happens at midnight. Spoiler alert, nothing. Um, (laughs) Plus, uh, host Dan Taberski shares his own Y2K story. It's called Surviving Y2K because Dan barely did. Ooh, what's that? What do we know? All right. Listen to the entire series ad-free now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash headlong and use the promo code unspooled for a free month of Stitcher Premium. And you know what? This is the stuff that helps the show. So if you do that, uh, you know, we appreciate it. So uh, definitely go to Stitcher Premium and slash headlong and use the promo code unspooled. The year is 1939 and a politician is about to make a difference no matter how many Boy Scouts get punched in the face. The movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Hello, everybody, and welcome to... Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shearer. This is the podcast where we are watching a film from the AFI's Top 100 list every single week and looking at if it still holds up, if it's still uh, enjoyable. Does it say something? Is it worth your time? And this week we got a real classic on our hands. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It says that Washington is corrupt, which is totally that's not true. <laughs> and uh, before we get into that, though, we want to go back to last week's episode where we talked about the classic Marx Brothers film, Duck Soup, uh, where we had Conan O'Brien sit in and talk to us a little bit about his feelings about the Marx Brothers. And we had so many great 
uh, pieces of feedback. The number one piece of feedback that we got, Amy, you and I both, we got <laughs> hammered with it. Uh, I'm just going to give this credit to uh, Mark uh, T. Cantor, who basically just taught us a lesson about how you pronounce uh, Chico Marx. It's not Chico, it's Chico. And it was Chico because Chico got a lot of chicks. You know, there are many theories as to why he was named that, but if it is pronounced Chico, that does make me believe the chick one slightly yeah. more. But is the shoe store called Chico's or Chico's? I mean, how are Listeners, we supposed to know? let us know. I don't know. Maybe it is Chico's. Like, hey, chick, check out those shoes. Oh. But that was uh, something that I am embarrassed to say I did not ever think about. So thank you for that correction for many of you, not just Mark uh, Thomas Cantor. Uh, what else you got, Amy? Kevin Joseph, who's at Kevin Joseph CMX, he thought of another film. I loved the, the point that you made with Duck Soup about how it was so many different comedy styles when yeah. you put all the Marx Brothers together. And he was like, you know, Caddyshot kind of worked like that. You got Dangerfield, Chase, Bill Murray, and oh. Knight. It should not work the way that it works together. Those people are all operating on totally different vibes. Yeah. But it does work. And Caddyshack is a very Marx Brothers type of film. If you think about it, like that plot is like, Dangerfield is like Groucho coming into this high society place. The only difference is, is like, you know, who's Chevy Chase? Maybe Chevy Chase, you know, because Bill Murray is kind of like Harpo. Yeah, you know, Chevy Chase Zeppo? I buy that. Um, Wait, who'd you say was Harpo? Uh, Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I that's a that. totally, and then who would Chico be? Chico, I guess. Well, you did it again. Oh, damn. Who would, check, <laughs> uh, who would Chico be? Who would Chico be? Chico is the hard one on that one. I mean, I guess, I mean, he wouldn't be Ted Knight because Ted Knight would be Margaret Dumont. Maybe, Maybe Chico. Chico would be Chevy Chase. Yeah, I mean, Chevy Chase was and, sort of handsome. And Zeppo would be, uh, Zeppo would be Danny. Yeah, I could, uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Gassel writes that I couldn't have been more wrong when it came to the writers of the film, I kind of hypothesized that the Marx Brothers, I assumed they did all the writing. Then I, when I saw writers, I was surprised. And I thought maybe they just carried over stuff from the vaudeville days. But Bob says, no, a handful of gags were carried over from vaudeville, but their best plays and movies used top-notch writers, which is such a unique thing to think of these very uh, disparate personalities, these strong comedic performers who didn't do their own writing. Who wrote maybe Caddyshack? Actually, it was uh, Doug Kenny, Harold Ramis, who also directed it, and I believe Brian Doyle Murray all have like writing credits on that movie. And I mean, that movie is a mess of a film that was kind of being rewritten on the fly, very much so like they got great personalities, and then through like the grace of God, that movie kind of clicked and worked. But at the time it came out, uh, Doug Kenny, one of the writers, actually uh, committed suicide because the movie was kind of a flop when it was first released, and after like all the acclaim of Animal House he just felt like his career was over. It's a very sad story and, and much better told in uh, David Wayne's movie, Stupid Futile Gesture, and that amazing doc, also, I believe, called Stupid Futile Gesture. Wow, that is very sad. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring it down. But I'll bring it up by saying this. Um, do you know who worked for the Marx Brothers as a gag writer? Mr. Buster Keaton. That was brought to us by Sean Dermond, and he actually sent us a picture that we put on our Twitter page. It was great to see them all 
sitting together. I love that because it feels like when you look back at history, you see everybody as like these discrete little timelines. Yeah. And then to watch them collide and hang out backstage and be like, oh, yeah, we're sharing a Coke. This is what people do. I don't they weren't sharing a Coke. In no, but yeah, they but they could have been. They probably did at some point. I just love that there was a kind of a, you know, the same way that it is now. You have people like, you know, Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill writing for Ali G, you know, when they were first kind of coming up and, you know, people pop in and add, you know, you're always surprised at who's on a writing staff of a show. It's It's really interesting. I love it. Well, what do you think? What do you think they really would have shared, Buster Keaton and and the Marx Brothers? Well, I feel like Buster Keaton and Harpo share many a thing. You know, I think like that effortless kind of, you know, physical gags. I feel like that's. I'm sure he was brought in for physical gags, not for wordplay, but who knows? I was expecting you to say something like a tuna fish sandwich, but <laughs> I, you gave me a much better answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys called in last week. And you are going to give us your best impassioned filibuster on why Jimmy Stewart is the greatest actor on the AFI Top 100 in a Jimmy Stewart voice, if you got one. Let's do it. Well, well hello. Uh, uh, Jimmy, I, I heard you, you want me to defend myself? Well, 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 you see, it's because I'm, I, Jimmy Stewart's the best actor because he, 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 he always acts so surprised, you know, like he's so just shocked by everything. It's just, my golly, it's amazing. I worked with Hitch and, and Capra and I was in Harvey for Christ's sake. Now, now, now see here, you, you may think I'm just a bumpkin, but I got ideas, big ideas, see, on how to fix this country. What more could you ask for? Well, I bet we rear windows. It just, it just does it all, Paul. It just does it all. Uh, I think that if you elected me for any sort of public office, it'd be fine. Fine. Oh, oh Johnny, he's the best actor we've ever had. And his movies are just terrific. Especially Five Goes West. All right, Amy, uh, let's get into it. Amy, the year is 1939. World War II is beginning. Uh, Albert Einstein and President Roosevelt begin America's A-bomb programs. LaGuardia Airport opens in New York. Uh, Thailand changes its name from Siam. Hewlett-Packard is formed. Lou Gehrig retires from Major League Baseball after being diagnosed with ALS. And a gallon of gas costs 10 cents. A new car is 700 bucks. Ralph Lauren, Tina Turner, and Marvin Gaye were born. And it's the year that Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the world is heading towards war, and Frank Capra looks around and he's like, oh, I guess I'm making a film about how American politicians are a bunch of crooks. Maybe this is a bad idea. He like writes later in his autobiography, the cancerous tumor of war was growing on the body politic, but our reform happy hero wanted to call the world's attention to the pimple of graft on its nose. Wasn't this the most untimely time for me to make a film about Washington? And yes, but he did anyways. And one of the things he did before he made the film is he visited the statue of Abraham Lincoln for courage. Looks like uh, art is imitating life there. So Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, directed by Frank Capra, written by Sidney Buckman. It stars Gene Arthur as a cynical secretary named Clarissa Saunders, James Stewart as Jefferson Jeff Smith, Claude Rains as Senator Joe Payne, Edward Arnold as Jim Taylor, a newspaper man, kind of in the Citizen Kane mold. Then you got a bunch of other people. You got a dopey governor named Happy. You got a drunk journalist named Diz. You got a bazillion people in here. You got a reporter named Nosy. And it's basically the story of a corrupt group of people, a politician, a governor, another politician, who arrange to appoint a man to the Senate that they think is a dope, that they can manipulate him into basically rubber stamping this damn deal that'll make them all rich. But the man turns out to be 
the greatest Boy Scout in the world who worships America cannot be broken. He can be bowed, he can collapse on the floor of the Senate, but he will rise again, voice cracking, to fight for America. You know, I thought you were going to say Boy Rangers, Amy, because actually the Boy Scouts would not let them use the name Boy Scouts for this film because they didn't like to be associated with maybe, uh, you know, what was going on with the politics of the movie. But they didn't find that out until a couple days into shooting. So they had to scrap like seven days of shooting where they used the word Boy Scouts. Whoa. But they did forgive Jimmy Stewart because like, yeah, Jimmy Stewart later on, he would do PSAs for the Boy Scouts. Oh, really? When you help start a scout troop, there's no guarantee that one of the scouts will grow up and be in the movies. But you never know. Call the Boy Scouts of America. (laughs) Wow. All right. He made his men. I mean, of course. But this is a movie that shows the power of the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts save the day. I don't know if, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves at this point. But, you know, the Boy Scouts are the reason why he succeeds at the end of the film. I would want to put my name all over this thing. Yeah, I mean, the Boy Scouts are kind of why he's doing this whole thing in the first place. Mr. Smith wants to build this camp. And maybe we should just set up this film earlier on with him giving his speech about why he wants to build a camp, what he believes in, because that's really who he is as an American. That's what's got to be in it. What? The Capitol Dome. On paper? I want to make that come to life for every boy in this land. Yes, and all light it up like that, too. You see, you see, boys forget what their country means by just reading the land of the free and history books. When they get to be men, they forget even more. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. By the way, and yes, I'm sorry if anybody out there is rolling their eyes. I just do have to say that part of me is inwardly rolling my eyes that this whole movie is about boys and men and boys and men and boys and men. Of course. It's very of boys course. and men. Well, yes, I, it's the time, but I, I just have of, to do that. Yes, there is no mention of Girl Scouts and Jimmy is not completely woke. But I think what surprised me more was the fact that this movie, which seems like an American classic, is getting pushback from the minute it's even discussed as becoming a film. Like they submit the short story for approval to the MPAA, right? And PCA director Joseph Breen cautioned, we would urge most earnestly that you take serious counsel before embarking on the production of any motion picture based on this story. It looks to us like one that might be loaded with dynamite, both for the motion picture industry and for the country at large. People were freaked out. They did not want to be associated with this film at all. Yeah, it's totally true. Like, in Capra's autobiography, he says a lot of stuff that can't totally be verified 100%, but he claims that, like, Paramount and MGM said they would not do this film at all because of its unflattering portrayal of the Senate that they said could be interpreted as, quote, a covert attack on the democratic form of government. He claimed that several senators tried to buy the film so it could never be released. Wow. There's a slightly more verified story that when it was premiered, it was premiered at like the National Press Club. Uh, people got mad. Oh, yeah. People <laughs> walked out. And, and yeah. like, I believe like senators were in attendance at that screening and they left. You know, this yeah, is the senator who was sitting next to him left. And then he said later on at the after party, he got surrounded by journalists and Frank Capra claimed he had to punch his way out of the journalists. Wow. So art is imitating life again. I 
think what I love about this film is how modern it feels. There's movement and pace to this film right from the start. It has this great montage at the beginning to reveal that a senator has died. It's engaging right, right out of the gate. Then it's funny. And you think you're about to see this kind of like, oh, small fish in a big pond comedy movie. But then it just turns. You know, we get this like kind of very dramatic reveal. And I feel like as the drama ratchets up, you get engaged in a completely different way. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie is divided into two camps, right? Cynical people about the government and non-cynical people about the government. But these two camps basically break down into everybody in the film is in the cynical department except for one guy. Yeah. And that would be that would be Jimmy Stewart. I mean, even the little kid, even the page boy who like shows him around how the Senate works. He's as cynical as everybody else. He's like, these people come in just to sleep. Those people never show up at all. It's a whole mess in here. Here's that page boy, by the way, just giving him this sarcastic introduction to what the Senate is like. Here you are, Senator. Not a bad desk, either. Daniel Webster used to use it. Daniel Webster sat here? Oh, Give you something to shoot at, Senator, if you figure on doing any talking. Oh, no, I'm just going to sit around and listen. And that's a way to get reelected. That actor, by the way, playing the page boy? Yeah. He's a kid. His name is Dickie Jones. You know his voice because it's from another giant movie from that same time period, also about people telling the truth. Oh, oh, look! My nose! Oh. What's happened? Perhaps you haven't been telling the truth, Pinocchio. Perhaps! Oh, but I have! Wow, he's Pinocchio? Dickie Jones, the page boy, is also Pinocchio. Wow, I love that. There's a lot of weird kid actor fun facts in this movie. Like, all the kids that are sitting around the governor's table. Right. Almost all of the boys are actually brothers. They were this whole brother act that was always just being brothers together. No wonder. I love that scene, but their timing was as good as like the Marx Brothers. Like they were all so on top of each other, just playing that scene. Like and and right out of the gate, I was like, "This movie is so funny." I was really surprised at that. But that just all those kids around the table just being a pain in the ass was really making they're me. They're so great, and I love them. Even a couple of scenes later, when they have this whole kid parade and yeah. they're like showing up to send off Mister Smith, and the one kid, the one with like the heavy chin dimples, like trying to give his speech out, and then yeah. just gives up, and he's like, "Oh heck, it's a briefcase, Jim." <laughs> Well, it's so funny to think that this film is saying this about our government the same way that we, I think, feel about our government now. You know, it it feels like the drain the swamp, this idea that the government has been like this for so many years, or at least the opinion of the government has been like this for so many years. And I think that was the thing that was so surprising about this film. Here's a movie that comes out, what was it, 1939, and it's echoing a way that we feel about our government now. And... I always thought, oh, maybe that was something that happened or started in the 60s during Vietnam. But to realize, no, it goes back even to the 30s that I think that was the most exciting thing to me about watching this film. Like, wow, this this is a timeless film. You know, it, it felt to me very similar to Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's really weird that every generation, and I'm guilty of it too, thinks that we invented cynicism. That right. we're the first generation who thinks they're smarter than the system. Right. But no, not at all. I mean, people were like making fun of, I think it was Grover Cleveland for having a kid out of wedlock, possibly, like way back in the day. We've always gone hard after people. It's been, it's brutal out there, man. Well, yeah. And I also feel like there's a distrust in our government that there are things going on behind the scenes. And and that's, uh, I think, a reason why this movie 
is important. I've never seen this movie before watching it for this. I've heard about it. I knew about it. I knew about what it was about generally, but I never sat down and watched it. And it and it kind of flows so effortlessly. There's not much here. I mean, ultimately, the movie is very simple. It's, you know, let's get this all shucks kind of guy, bring him to D.C., we'll make him pass the bills that we want, he'll be our puppet. And and he doesn't do that. He stands up and then he wins. And the end is very dark. I mean, the end is, you know, the guy who sets out to betray him, you know, goes to kill himself and then stopped and then, you know, and then everything is kind of wrapped up nicely at the end. But it... But if the guy had it gone out to kill himself, he would have won. I know. There's not really a happy ending. It reminded me, did you see The Oath? Uh, yes. I don't want to ruin the oath for too much for people who yeah. haven't seen it, but, it, but it, it reminded me of this Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany Haddish movie that came yeah. out, The Oath, where it takes it to such a dark, satirical place about modern politics that at the end when they kind of solve it, you're like, well, thank God for that, because I don't think it would actually happen in real life. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, there's an element of this movie that is darker than I think the idea of it is. And, you know, I think originally this movie was going to be a sequel to um, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, right? And it was supposed to star uh, Gary Cooper. Our old buddy Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper. You know, then they were going to make like Mr. Deeds Goes to Washington. But for whatever reason, he was unavailable for the role. So they got Jimmy Stewart in here. And I think there's something really interesting about Jimmy Stewart versus Gary Cooper. Because Gary Cooper, I think, you know, he has emotion, but he's you know, a, a man's man, right? I mean, where, you know, where Jimmy Stewart really, I think, is known for the all shucks quality of his personality. I mean, yeah, Gary Cooper is like a tree mm-hmm. and Jimmy Stewart is like a reed. Yeah. You know, and they both won't get destroyed, maybe, maybe. That's the thing. Like, the log is more likely to get destroyed. The log is more likely to crack and break and be like, ah. And yeah. Jimmy Stewart's like, I don't know, I'm waving in the breeze. And he's got, I mean, Jimmy Stewart's hair even is sort of modern in this when it falls in his face. Yeah. Yeah, it's like sensitive dude. He is apparently like a sensitive hunk. You know, Jimmy Stewart has always been a guy who was like in black and white for me. He was the It's a Wonderful Life, a film that we'll get to eventually. Yeah. Knowing our creepy, creepy die, we'll probably roll it around Christmas, which will freak me out. <laughs> I hope it doesn't do that. That, Or maybe I do. I don't know. But anyways, he's always been a black and white guy. And here you see him kind of young and lean and hunky. And yeah. And like you're like, oh, he was sort of a uncommon sex symbol, which I hadn't thought of. And they do a really surprising thing where you think he's this like kind of soft guy. But then he goes around, starts punching people in the face. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I'd never seen Jimmy Stewart, like, just haul off and deck people. And he decks people, like, in a punching montage. I realized that uh, I did something for the show I did on Adult Swim called NTSF. And what we did for our trailer was just a trailer of me punching people in the face. And I was like, oh, I guess I just copied Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's the exact same idea. But to see him kind of stand up for himself... I think it's actually a really important thing to show. It's yeah, like, but does he have stand up for himself in a way that creeps me out? I want to play that punching montage because uh, to set it up for people who haven't seen it yet, the press has kind of accosted him at his hotel, gotten him to be like, I'm an all shucks guy. Look yeah. at me. I have a tomahawk somehow in the back yeah. of my pocket. And they use it to mercilessly make fun of him. And then he goes on a punching rampage about how the press is evil. And that's when I was like, oh, man. Hello, nosy. Who let you in here? Why aren't you out chasing ambulances? That guy Smith's punching everybody he meets. I just got away from him. Oh, oh, Tarzan. Why don't you tell the people the truth for a change? Oh, the truth. The man wants the truth. The The man man wants the the truth. What is the truth, suggesting pilot, and would not stay for an answer? (laughs) How do you want it, Senator? Dished out or in a bottle? The people of this country pick up their papers and what do they read? Well, this morning they read that an incompetent clown had arrived in Washington. 
parading like a member of the Senate. You thought as much about being honest as you do about being smart. Honest? Why, we're the only ones who can afford to be honest in what we tell the voters. We don't have to be reelected like politicians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, they're not wrong. Yeah. They have him pinned. He was showed up to do basically just the bidding of, of, of his right. lead senator in charge. And they're correct. Amy, you and I know that the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. I mean, as business people, uh, you as with your tycoon. I mean, yes. I mean, your steel mill is amazing. I love what you're doing, building all those beautiful tanks and ships. And I run a very successful uh, temp cater waitering firm. We make uh, your forks, by the way. Oh, and you know what? And our guys never drop them because it's weighted so perfectly. And I, because you chose good guys and that's girls. That's right. And I only chose good people for my uh, temp cater waiter service because I use LinkedIn, okay? I'm not just posting on a job board, which most people don't check. You post your job to a place where people go every day to make connections and grow in their careers and discover job opportunities. I know LinkedIn works, not only because my mom sends me a LinkedIn invitation about once every week, but because I've actually talked to people who have used LinkedIn and gotten hired at really good jobs. Okay, LinkedIn members uh, don't visit the top boards, okay? But nine out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is on LinkedIn. That's astonishing, 70. 70. It's the best way to get your job opportunity in front of people who are qualified for the role and ready for something new. It's the best way to find the right person who will help you grow in your business. That is why a new hire is made, guess what, every 10 seconds. You know how many hires were just made during this ad read? Three. Wow, this is like watching... Economics work in action. Four. Look, hurry to <laughs> LinkedIn.com slash unspooled and get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash unspooled to get $50 off your first job post. Five. LinkedIn.com unspooled. Terms and conditions apply. Six. You know, I think that there's this dark undertone of this film, whether it's the people, the ideas, and I was doing some research and found that this movie was made actually during a very dark time in Frank Capra's life. He made this movie after uh, his infant son had died from complications of a tonsillectomy. Uh, so he's in this place because I think when you think of Frank Capra, you think of, oh, it's a wonderful life. I think, you like know. Capricorn, what they call him. Yeah. And, and, and there's something like so high and beautiful and, and light and it's the Americana. And so when seeing this juxtaposition, it's like I wonder if those life events, you know, pushed him in a little bit of a different direction because he taps into this in a way that um, is darker than what I know of Frank Capra. Yeah. But I, I have this theory that Frank Capra is like really dark in plain sight. Really? Yeah, because even It's a Wonderful Life is so dark in plain sight. Like, right, maybe you're right. He's There's something where he has all this blackness in his films, but you only remember, like, the sugar. Right, because maybe it's the idea that the, the good guys have won, so no, you had to get through the muck to get there, you know? Yeah, he always makes it this, like, uphill battle. But I, I think he fights so hard for good in his movies because he really puts forth all the bad. Well, it's interesting because Frank Capra is one of these few directors whose name would be above the title, um, which is something that we now see all the time, you know, whether it's, you know, Christopher Nolan movie, an Ike Barinholtz movie, what you understand who is making this film. Yeah. And uh, here when he makes this film, he's like huger than he's ever been. Like he had just won the best director uh, Oscar the year before for You Can't Take It With You. 
Huge, huge, huge hit. Mr. Deeds, of course, Lost Horizon. It happened one night, which we're going to get to. Like, he was the dude of the 30s. He's kind of Spielbergian. And so I think what's interesting is, is like, for him, it was a point of pride to be like, my name is on top of the title because you're getting a Frank Capra movie. Here's uh, Frank Capra actually talking to Martin Scorsese about that. I was the enemy of a major studio. I believed one man, one film. I believe one man should make the film. And I believe the director should be that one man. One man should do it. I didn't give a damn whom, but what but the director had, had, had the most uh, to do with it. Uh, I, I just couldn't I just couldn't accept art as a committee. I think it's why maybe his films are so memorable, because it's a clean, clear voice that is coming through here. It doesn't feel like he kowtowed to any of these people that are stopping him from making this movie. I mean, like we said, not only is it stopped when they're submitting the short story, not only is it stopped when they are trying to release it uh, in the States, but in Europe, you know, every step of the way, they wouldn't even let them shoot those scenes in Washington, D.C. He stole those scenes. When Jimmy Stewart's visiting all the monuments, they did that totally illegally. Because the Parks Department did not want to be involved in contributing to this film. I know. And I do love those scenes. I mean, this film, that montage where where Jimmy Stewart is like touring the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, it almost teeters on kind of like frightening propaganda. Do you ever do that thing where you watch a scene in an American movie that's like, my heart is stirring. And right. you imagine watching it like set in any other country. And then you think like, is this weird? Right, right, right. Because it's it, it's weird. It's a little weird. A hundred percent. I mean, flags this... and statues and eagles and granite and like everything. Yeah. Well, I think it's a s- subtle difference between the type of, you know, propaganda and the lifestyle of America that we see in E.T., where you assume like all Americans live in these big houses and have all this money. And in this film, it's more like we're seeing the world through... Mr. Smith's eyes. You know, he's the one who's looking so longingly. I, I don't know if the movie's saying we should look at America that way, but this character sees it this way. And, you know, I think that's an interesting distinction because I think it actually works better dramatically for the story to see a person looking at this instead of just seeing these symbols. Well, yeah, and it has a whole arc to it. You know, at first it's like uplifting. It's like right. life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And then it takes that turn into death. You know, the saints go marching yeah. in, comes in, and you start to see the soldier's memorial and the tomb of the unknown soldier. It gets very, very solemn. And then you get to the Lincoln Monument, and you have this giant Lincoln. And what's oh, crazy so about beautiful. the Lincoln is, like, you keep visiting him in the movie. And just the way you cast the light on the Lincoln, he can look kind of mad at you yeah look calm it's like how much are his brows shadowed (laughs) and then you have kind of this pan that i find really deliberate i think where like frank capra looks around at who else is watching the lincoln monument at the moment that he's there and you have like an elderly black man who's watching it and somebody who looks like maybe a jewish immigrant and they're there and i feel like capra was like this is everybody's statue this is everybody's america i feel like he really tried to do that in just like silent extra casting i love that but like the idea that he stole that that's that's so like he just won an oscar and he's stealing stuff like that's really kind of cool i know that he like that he wanted to make this movie and essentially i think is faced with this problem going if you make this movie it may be the end of you you know i mean to a certain degree because if the people reacted badly to it he may not have worked again or he may have taken a hit and lost some of that 
uh, autonomy that he speaks about, you know, in that clip about making one man, one movie. Yeah. I mean, the whole film industry almost lost some autonomy. Like when this movie was coming out, uh, this one editor, this guy, Pete Harrison, he actually suggested that maybe Congress should pass a bill allowing theater owners to refuse to show films like Mr. Yes. Smith that were not, quote, in the best interest of our country. And then what happens is like this film, there's kind of a theory that out of revenge, Congress started to push forward even further the Neely anti-block booking bill. I mean, you know what block booking? No. Okay. So block booking was this process that the big studios, you know, the major ones, especially like Lowe's and MGM and Paramount and Fox and Warner Brothers and RKO, they uh, would kind of make a thing where it's like, if you want our best films, you have to just agree to take this whole chunk of our films. So if you want to show like a camp, a Capra film, like a really good Capra film, that's going to make you a lot of money. You got to take our lesser films over here. And so because of this movie, they say, the Senate started to fast track that bill a little bit more. So then in 1940, the year after this, the studios had to make a deal with Congress being like, okay, 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 let's settle this. And they came up with a consent decree. And that's sort of when they started to chip away at the studio power. I'm not saying that Mr. Smith is totally responsible for killing the studio system, but it was like one chisel to the granite monument of the studio system. Wow. Yeah, so he's breaking, you know, so maybe this movie does break down the studio system, but I think it also breaks down the way films are being made at this time. Um, you know, normally at this time, they would do this like one camera setup, you know, set up and grab something and then move and set up and grab something and move. But, you know, because they had this giant set of the Senate floor and I mean, it's huge. It's it's a big, gigantic set, I think. Yeah, I mean, like really picture the set of the Senate floor. It's kind of crazy. It's like three stories, all sorts of different sections intense geography positions mean things i mean capra called it like trying to shoot in a well he said it was a logistical nightmare well it's a it's at this point i imagine an expensive set it's a hundred thousand dollars just for this one set in the film and so he didn't want to waste time when he was in there and he was using a lot of reaction shots of the observers so he wanted to retain this kind of natural flow to these shots so what he would do was he basically created like a whole multiple camera, multiple sound method of shooting, which enabled them to use uh, big equipment, you know, on the move, basically. They could get half a dozen separate scenes before they move to the next spot, which is pretty amazing. Like he's shooting it like a Michael Bay movie. I remember uh, <laughs> I had a friend who was on Bad Boys and every every car in this Bad Boys 2, every car in the in this big chase over the Florida Keys, had a, a camera rig on the car. Everyone had to slate. And then he was watching like a wall of monitors because he knew that the scene would come in like that. So he had to watch it all. And it's a great way to kind of shoot this film. And I think that's the reason why this movie feels a little bit more alive is because... Paul, are you the first person to compare Frank Capra and, and Michael Bay? I hope so. You know what? I think it's an apt comparison. They both celebrate the American dream. This one does it with American flags and fast cars. And the other one with American flags and Jimmy Stewart. Um, but, well, yeah, I, like, you know, it's like it's just interesting. He's like capturing and he's like he's revolutionizing the way that you shoot movies. And he's taking it super, super seriously because he hired this guy named Jim Preston. You know about this? Mm. Okay. So Frank Capra hires this guy named Jim Preston as his, like, technical advisor. Right. And Jim Preston is a dude who worked on the Senate floor. He was, like, a superintendent of the Senate press gallery for 30 years. Okay. And he was like, okay, okay, okay. We're going to get this all right. So Preston was like, this is what a real bill looks like. They used real bills. They used real forms. Preston was like... Yo, if you have this desk over here, make sure there's a scratch in it because it's kind of famous that Jefferson Davis had a bayonet stick into it. Wow. He was like, oh, when you show the clock, make sure you show that the clock has a padlock on it because apparently the members of the Senate would try to break into the clock and like 
rewind Whoa. or fast forward the time so that they would have to wait there later. I mean, basically, wow, basically like the Senate floor in this movie and possibly in reality feels like high school. Yeah, like Jimmy Stewart walk in and everybody's at their desks and they're laughing at him. It really does feel like that. It, you know, it's interesting you say that because I didn't even think about it until you said it. Like, oh yeah, it's very much like the nerdy kid at school standing. Up. I mean, this is. I would argue this is the typical American film, right? I mean, if we were to break it down in the films that are probably most made, it is this, you know, underdog standing up against everybody else and, and everyone realizing like, yeah, you are the smartest one here. You are, you know, it's like, I think that is the most traditional type of, a, of American film. Would you agree with that to a certain degree? Yes, but he's like yeah. going after the American. I mean, the typical American film would end with everybody giving him a slow clap. Right. Like you convinced us, but he never convinces them. They like never still really listen. Well, there actually were scenes like that. Um, the original ending was much, much longer. It included scenes uh, like Mr. Smith going back home to his state, giving a parade with Saunders. And then you see the Taylor machine being crushed. And you see Smith on a motorcycle stopping to see Senator Payne forgiving him. Then everyone goes to see Smith's mother, who gives Saunders her blessing as a daughter-in-law. It was cut because the audience, after they saw it, were like, it just it dilutes what we just did, you know. Although when you look at the trailer for this film, you will see some of those parade shots in the trailer. I just thought that was interesting that they kind of cut it back and made the movie a little bit more bare bones. Didn't make it like the Capra esque ending. Yeah, because it does seem like it just ends. He talks for twenty three hours. They say sixteen minutes, but he talks a couple minutes later, so maybe he talks for like twenty three hours and eighteen minutes. Yeah, and then he just collapses. And that's not too late. Because this country is bigger than the Taylors, or you, or me, or anything else. Great principles don't get lost once they come to light. They're right here. You just have to see them again. Like, there's that moment, actually, I was thinking about Twitter when, because uh, I guess I'm always thinking about Twitter, when he gets, like, all the stacks of telegrams that yeah. they're telling him are from his constituents, telling him to stop filibustering. Right. And he looks at them, and you, I was thinking, oh, my God, it's like you're being barraged by fake tweets, and you don't yeah. know that they're from bots. Yeah. And I was so sad for him. I was like, they're bots, man. They're, like, the equivalent of bots. You know, that filibuster speech was basically improvised. And it was Jimmy Stewart just reading, obviously, from historical documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, uh, and even uh, reading from the King James Bible, specifically the love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which is interesting. I think they just let it roll because they knew that they just needed to see him getting desperate and kind of floundering a little bit. So I thought that was an interesting thing because the performance, I think, does feel like he doesn't have it fully fleshed out or what he's doing. What would you read if you had to filibuster? Um, I would probably read uh, the screenplay to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and, you know, and uh, and act out all the parts. <laughs> That's so meta. Yeah. Do you think you could do uh, Eugene Pallet's voice? And I was like, I'm a frog and I'm yelling at you. <laughs> I would try. Look, I'm going to perform the hell out of it. No doubt about it. Um, <laughs> you know, overall, he's an interesting character, but he's just a good man who continues to be a good man. I mean, there's no real growth. Yeah, like the most important woman in his life back home is his mom. She's yes. like the only one we ever check in with is the mom being like, hey, I'm the mom over here. Which, by the way, is the third time that Balula Bondi played his mother. She would have played him five times in total throughout his career. She's Jimmy Stewart's go-to mom. 
Wow, that's so sweet. Yeah. There's this moment, though, where like the, the hot daughter, um, the hot daughter calls him old Abe. Uh-huh. And she means it like an insult, which I think is funny. Because right. this is a movie where he looks up to Abraham Lincoln beyond anything. And we're supposed to look up to Abraham Lincoln sure. because he was a pretty cool guy. And she calls him old Abe. Like, that's like, oh, who wants to go on a date with an old Abe? Man? <laughs> but yet, but then when he first gets off the train, I feel like... All the women are like into him because he's just like different and new, like fresh meat in a way, right? He could give them a dollar each for the milk. Fund. Yeah, that's like breakfast at Tiffany's. Give me like twenty dollars for the powder room, kind of a thing. Well, it's interesting because he—they're creating a character for him who is yes, a sex symbol, but shy, but bold because he can punch somebody, but yet wanted. Oh, he's so Gosling. Now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. Ooh, should that be Gosling's next movie? Why, why do you say Gosling and then be like, oh, like you're not into Gosling? Because I'm not into the way Gosling is running his career. But if Gosling was more in this direction, I might be more pro-Gosling. Really? I I really like what Gosling does. I mean, Nice Guys is like a fun turn in, in what he does. Nice Guys is great. Nice yeah. Guys is great. But Blade Runner. Blade Runner is good, right? No? Uh, Gosling has so much charm and personality, and I feel like he kind of buried it for a while. He's like, I'm a silent guy. Who's right. Tough. If Gosling was Jimmy Stewarting, I'd be down. Okay. A fair point. I really love the new Blade Runner, but so, uh, but I also would argue that Harrison Ford back in that time had so much energy in life and then made this kind of choice <laughs> to be, you know, Rick Decker is not like, it's almost anti every role that he'd been playing up into that part. Yeah. But like when Harrison Ford shows up in the new Blade Runner, it's basically like, listen, I'm going to go in your movie, but I'm only going to show up as me, Harrison Ford. <laughs> I'm not going to play the character that you I used to like know. That's... I'm going to wear my jeans, take yeah. it or leave it. Anyway, anyway. Yes. Let me ask you a question though. Mm-hmm. Back to the train sequence. He's got this whole thing with the pigeons. Mm-hmm. Were you expecting the pigeons to be a bigger part of the movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what's going on. Maybe if the movie lasted a little bit longer, those pigeons would be sending some messages. I thought at the end that would be how they would like get the information back home. Right? Doesn't it feel like it? They can't get this message out to anybody. And he has all these pigeons. And we keep hearing about how the pigeons can find their way home with messages. Yeah. But yet, you know, the movie isn't even working on that kind of a fantastical level. It's like he doesn't need the birds. Like what he needs is for himself to have conviction. And when he does have conviction, but to share it and fight forward. And, and, and But here's a guy who we see in the first scene. He's punching all these people after he, you know, his name is maligned in the press. But yet... The whole movie culminates in this filibustering speech. Is it that bold of a move for him to do when we've seen that he does have a backbone throughout this whole entire film? Because, like, what pops to me isn't even so much, like, his amazing nobility in the filibuster scene. It's how impossible it is for anyone to hear him. It's, like, the grimness of everything happening around right. him. Evil Jim Taylor, the Citizen Kane-esque, like, newspaper magnet is not just shutting him down, but his men are literally like basically beating up children who are trying yes. to get the news out. When I saw that sequence, again, this movie is dark. Like they steal shit from kids and like break their stuff. It's it's like, wow, okay, this is a really, don't they even turn a water hose on them at one point? Like these kids are getting hosed down. They are bad dudes. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and it made me think, you know, a lot about, The Parkland kids, honestly, a little bit, Mm -hmm. a little bit, because I was thinking how so much in this movie, what you see is the old people are this way and the old people 
are mostly cynical. And it's the young people who want him in office. It's the young people who see that he's like a great leader. And the one group of people he always has on his side is the young. Well, one of the things that the expert that Jim Preston told Capra is he was like, you know, when you want to fill your Senate with people, by the way, here's what they look like. He said the average uh, senator at the time was 52 years old and he was five foot 11. And he was, of course, a white male. Wow. um, Just kind of as a given. Yeah. And... Now, I looked it up, actually, and, like, the average age of a senator is even older. The average age of a senator today is, like, 61. Well, I was going to say, old. when this movie came out in 1939, 25 uh, senators are still the same ones that were in the office at that point. Oh, my God. I'm just joking. That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, women were mainly only in the Senate if, like, their husband had been in office and their husband died. That was your way to get in the government if you were a woman. Okay, interesting. Yeah, there's actually, like, as a tiny detour, there's a really interesting woman who was there when they did the big premiere that was like, everybody was mad right. and Capra's fighting his way out like he claimed he was. Oh, and her name was Margaret Chase Smith. And her husband was a house member. Her husband, Clyde, was, like, in the house in Maine. And he died of a heart attack right after that. She got elected as, like, a special position to fill his role. And then she got reelected for good two years later. So then she became this awesome representative from Maine. Oh, really? Who voted against, like, the party when she had to. She was the first Republican to denounce McCarthyism. She was the first woman to be both in the House and the Senate. And also her name just being Smith. Like, I think part right. of it was, like, she was riding this post-Smith post wave where they were like, Mrs. Smith is going to Washington. And speaking of great women, there's a great uh, woman in this film. Her name is Jean Arthur. She plays Saunders. And I loved her chemistry with Jimmy Stewart in this film. You know, so dynamic and so smart and funny. And, you know, she's just not standing beside him, rooting him on. She's helping him because she's smarter than him in this world. And and, and I think it's it's a great – I don't know. I just love their relationship. I, I just really connected to it. I, I wanted to see more of that. Yeah, I would love to do like a couple like Gene Arthur clips real fast. Yeah. I mean, she was Frank Capra's favorite actress. He put her in like movies again and again and again and again. He kind of worked around. He twisted himself in knots to make sure she was okay in his movies. Because really? apparently the story with Gene Arthur is she had one good side. Yes, her left one, side, right? And one bad side. Right. And so he made sure that he would build sets so that she could always walk in with her good side. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, and she didn't really even like, uh, you know, the fact that Jimmy Stewart was doing this part. She wanted it to be Gary Cooper. And I think they had a real bumpy relationship throughout this film. But maybe that actually helped, you know, because she's also getting top billing in this film, I believe, too. You know, it's because Jimmy Stewart was not the the go-to guy at this point. Um, yeah, something sort of weird is going on with all of this because, like, apparently there's a story that in the 70s, Frank Kepper showed this movie at Yale Law School mm-hmm. and he invited Gene. Gene was like in town. He's like, Gene, come. Yeah. And she said, I can't. I have to go home and feed my cats. So I don't know what was happening wow. here. There seems to be a little bit of Gene-ness. Gene, yeah. by the way, was like in the 70s, she was teaching at Vassar and one of her students was Meryl Streep. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You know, and also I read something that said that Gene Arthur thought that Jimmy Stewart was a little deliberately too cute and didn't like that. So I love that that energy might have come out in the performance because she really does not get taken with that part of him. And and maybe that's reality kind of kicking in there. That's true. And he's like, I want to go see, you know, Mount Vernon. She's like, oh, give me a fucking break. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, here's some Gene. This is Gene um, where you really get a glimpse of... The girl she used to be when she talks about who she was and how Washington, D.C. has changed her. 
He went up to Mount Vernon to give himself a patriotic address. That's fine. Now then, Saunders, you stop this nonsense and go back to Smith's office and go to work and get him to send it by 12 o'clock. Look, Senator, I wasn't given a brain just to tell a boy ranger what time it is. Don't be a fool, Saunders. If certain things happen, I'm taking everybody up with me and you'll get one of the biggest jobs in Washington. Look, when I came here, my eyes were big blue question marks. Now they're big green dollar marks. Smart girl, eh? All right, finish this job properly and you get a handsome bonus. And by properly, I mean keep Smith away from anything that smacks of politics. Including Willet Crick Dam? Including Willet Crick Dam. Now go back to your work. One of the things I love about that, by the way, is you heard him slam the door when she says Willet Creek Dam. Yeah. And it's that first kind of clue that A, she's smarter than he thinks she is. She knows more mm-hmm. about what he's up to. And B, whatever this Willet Creek Dam thing is, it is very serious. And just in that little yes. motion of closing the door and then opening it again, you're like, what is happening? Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why this character comes across as well as that, like you're saying, smart and 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 kind of feisty is because Howard Hawks came in to help kind of punch up her dialogue. In in a scene that I think I've seen again in many films, she drunkenly admits to being in love with Jimmy Stewart. That's a scene that I think I've seen so many times, but it it's believable. It's not out of nowhere. We talked about it on African Queen, like all of a sudden they're in love and we're like, well, I didn't even feel it yet. And I think that's because like Howard Hawks came in to help Capra kind of craft that scene. And and I think, you know, in really thinking about that scene and not just making it like a very like, of course she loves him kind of throwaway moment, that scene becomes more real. And when, when it plays out, it's incredibly emotional. And, and, and you feel, you again, you see it through her eyes. I, I love that scene. Well, you feel like it kind of sucks for her to love him because yes. she knows better and now she has to protect this dummy. Yes. She's, she's like, like, God damn it, now why? I have, I have to be a part of this, yeah. <laughs> and also, you see that she doesn't always make, she's not perfect. She doesn't always make like the best choices for herself. She drunkenly is going to marry this dude, Diz, just because. Right. Because she just like doesn't want to deal with any of this world anymore. And then I'm going to play this tiny little throwaway line. It just amuses me so much the way that she talks. Yeah. Uh, this is when Diz shows up. She's very disillusioned. They're going to get drunk. And he asks her where the bitters are so they can start drinking. Where are your bitters? In the thing there. Behind the thing. I'm sorry. Just in the thing there behind the thing. I love I it. love that so much. <laughs> but that's, again, it's a familiar story, but it's still compelling. I mean, this movie has been done so many times. Legally Blonde is an example I can think of right off the gate. You know, it's like it's taking the format of this movie and it's showing you in a different way. It's, you know, it's one person against the system that's kind of against them. Yeah, I like their romance and I buy it. But it also feels like the bigger romantic commitment here is... Really just like Jimmy Stewart committing to the office. Like, is he strong enough to stay by the oath that he's taken? I mean, even the way that they've... But there's no doubt of that. Well, yeah, but when you think... Okay, listen to his swearing-in ceremony. And it sounds to me kind of like a wedding vow. The swearing-in of the Senate that designates the order of business. The gentleman will raise his right hand. Do you solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic, and that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that you take this obligation freely, without mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter. So help you, God. I do. I don't think I knew that that was the exact word for word 
swearing in of somebody who was right. on the Senate floor. But I don't know. I got to shiver at like, do you promise to defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic? By the way, they do never mention the words Republican or Democrat in this entire. I movie. know. I noticed that. It's interesting. It's it's oddly nonpartisan. It's 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 just about politics. Yeah, like Capra himself was sort of like all over the place. Like he was kind of a conservative, but he was also. You know, a poor immigrant. He was from Italy right. who worked his way up and also believed in kind of sharing the wealth. Like, he has this whole beautiful story about when he arrived from Italy, um, sailing in horrible, 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 like, ship crews from right. Italy to New York. And when they saw the Statue of Liberty, his dad just looked up and he said, that's the greatest light since the Star of Bethlehem. That's the light of freedom. Which is where I think so much of Kepper's idealism about this country came from you know i i would say i went to catholic school with a bunch yeah. of irish nuns and they were all immigrants sure and they loved america with a passion that most of my cynical like born america friends didn't have but it's interesting because you're saying here's a person who has this you know they idolize america but this is a movie that's taking down the politics of america and it's showing yes democracy works and i think that's Probably the biggest takeaway, but when you're talking about politicians reacting to this film and when this movie is going overseas, you have people like uh, Senator James F. Burns of South Carolina going, look, we cannot release this overseas. This plays right into the hands of fascist regimes and because they didn't want other countries to see that we were this corrupt you know, world. And, you know, and so much so that uh, when it was dubbed into certain European countries, they actually altered the message of the movie so it conformed with their official ideology. You know, it's a very interesting thing. Do you think they dubbed it also in a Jimmy Stewart voice where he's like, you know, obeying your leader is Picture the best thing. Berliner. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I pulled a negative review of the film, which I will read, but I also pulled just like a bunch of negative senators reviewing the film. Okay. Because they're all really mad at it. Um, Harry, Harry Truman, not yet a Ooh. president. He wrote this to his wife, went to see Miss, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, it makes asses out of all senators who are not crooks. But he said it does show the correspondence in their true drunken light. So he liked the fact that all the journalists were drunk. Um, Senator Kenneth McKellar of Tennessee said, which by the way, is the one thing that really pissed off all the people in the press because they were like, we're not drunks. We're not. They were mad at it. I embrace being drunk. Uh, <laughs> Senator Kenneth McKellar said that picture is a libel upon the Senate of the United States and upon the individual members of the body. Senator Barkley of Kentucky, he was stopped in the corridor of the Senate right after he saw the movie. And he went on this whole tirade, whole fucking meltdown. He called it a grotesque distortion of the way that the Senate is run. He said it was as grotesque as anything I've ever seen. He said that it showed the Senate as the biggest aggregation of nincompoops on the record. Uh, and then he said that every senator agreed with him. And the reporter was like, really? And he said, well, I didn't see anybody praise it. He said, I speak for the whole body. The vote was 96 to none and no filibuster. Wow. And I think this is interesting. It's like people were reading it on one side and not the other. Like they were seeing the indictment, but not seeing the fact that, no, this is showing that the system allows for a lone voice to change the system or to make a difference. Uh, now, as long as one guy gets a Guilty, pang of conscience, and yeah. almost commit suicide. Uh, well, that, yeah, sure. I mean, they got to put it all in the mix. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that is interesting because it feels like the film has has become like two politicians, their battle cry. Like, yeah. not as much as High Noon. I mean, High right. Noon was, of course, like, I'm a lone guy with a gun. Of right. course, presidents are going to love that one. But apparently, like, Reagan modeled his whole campaign against Jimmy Stewart. Like, they knew each wow. other. They were buddies. Of course. Um, actor, yeah. You know, when Nixon was having a dark night of the soul, which he had several, he went to the Lincoln Memorial in the middle of the night. 
Which, by the way, you know, you and I, we just recently went to Washington ourselves, like on separate trips. Yeah. I went to the Lincoln Memorial too, like on a rainy, rainy, rainy day. It was super rainy. Um, this was last week. And I stood there and I was like, I want to feel a little stirring in my soul. And I was sort of, I was a little jealous of Nixon's moment. And I mean, I, I felt the same way. I, I didn't go to Lincoln's Memorial. I went to the Chipotle on um, <laughs> one of the bigger streets in Washington. And I and I did feel something stirring, uh, but I didn't feel like really moved by it. <laughs> I'm saluting whatever flag that is. <laughs> Same thing with Obama. Before Obama got inaugurated, he went to the Lincoln Memorial and was like, I'm at the Lincoln Memorial. And people were writing about Mr. Obama going to Washington. Wow. I mean, everybody has tried to claim a little piece of this, even like shady people. Elliot Spitzer has been like, I'm really the true Mr. Smith. Sarah Palin was like, I'm Mr. Smith. Right, right, Joe right. Joe the Plumber was like, I'm Mr. Smith. They're all Mr. Smith. Well, I mean, I think this movie does hold relevance. I mean, in 1942, when a ban on American movies was imposed in German-occupied France, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was the last movie before the ban went into effect, and one Paris theater reportedly screened the movie nonstop for 30 days prior to the ban. And I feel like it was a message to be like, we can, you know, all we need is one voice. You know, it is it is a a triumphant movie. We can we can get over this. And I and I I just love that. You know, I know we're gonna talk about Jimmy Stewart a lot, but here's a guy who gets this kind of big chance in this movie and there's a couple of really funny stories about him and what he did to make sure that he wouldn't blow it because he knew like if i make it here i'll become like a huge movie you know movie star i'm in a capra movie i'm a lead this will be great they said that he would leave his uh house at five o'clock in the morning and drive himself to the studio because he was so terrified that something was going to happen to him he wouldn't go faster than speed limit he just wanted to make sure that he was being respectful of the road and i love that idea that he's just like no i have to protect myself in every way and then during the filibuster scene they put mercuric chloride on his vocal cords to make him sound hoarse which does not feel like that was a good thing to do. Like I feel like that mercuric chloride is not a thing that I don't I don't I don't even know what it is, but it doesn't seem safe. It's a powder that's probably Oof. really bad to put in your throat. I do not like that at all. I have no idea. Maybe that is part of how Jimmy Stewart got to have his voice. I mean, I was looking <laughs> at Jimmy Stewart impressions. Uh, there's one that I decided not to pull uh, okay. because it was Dana Carvey doing an impression of Jimmy Stewart getting a blowjob from Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? For Catherine Hepburn's sake. But here's one from Jim Carrey doing Jimmy Stewart. We're going to have ourselves a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> well, hey, everybody, come on over to the window. <laughs> Look at that mushroom cloud. Something so magnificent, <laughs> colorful, could just melt your face right off. You know, I think this is a movie where obviously Jimmy Stewart launches his career and, and impressions like that become like ubiquitous. But Mr. Smith also becomes ubiquitous. I know I talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast, how this movie is a clone. You know, we, we've seen so many versions of this. And I wanted to play uh, some of the different incarnations of uh, Mr. Smith. For example, there was a Mr. Smith TV show. Oh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, where it takes a rocket and for all that must be done. Boy, but he gets a lot of joy. 
kind and ways of fixing things that need a helping hand. His ways are kind of plain, but they're just as right as rain. Simple ways that honest people understand. Mr. Smith is the people's choice. Answer in with action when he hears the people's voice. When your cause is a righteous one, call a Mr. Smith and wash his Then, do you know the series of films called, like, Billy Jack? You ever hear of those movies? Those are wild. How would you explain Billy Jack to people who don't know what Billy Jack is? He's sort of like a liberal Charles Bronson of the 70s? Yeah. Like, Does he wears a cowboy hat and, and kind of, like, you know, fixes everything from, like, union wages to, you know, he's definitely using his fist. And yeah, he, like, fights in honor of, like, not having atom bombs like i think his character is that he's like he's part navajo yes yes this is all true so he's a part navajo and he's like a green beret vietnam vet yes and he goes to washington the final billy jack movie is billy jack goes to washington here's a little piece of the trailer uh it it really needs to be seen but they take the punching montage as really the, the the main thrust of what they should be taking from mr smith goes to washington and so in between everything that he's saying in this uh, when you hear glass breaking, it's when he's punching another person. But here we go. This is a Billy Jack goes to Washington. I mean, you know how to manufacture that stuff every time you want to run for your election. Every time you want to stuff a nuclear plant down people's throat, then you know how to manufacture that stuff with your Madison Avenue boys overnight. And then once you get inside this chamber, you forget all about it for the next six years. I don't care if all of the Baileys, all of your Baileys, Come marching in here with all their armies and all the National Guards, and you fill this chamber with lies! That's who they are! It's lies! So, that's a little taste of Billy Jack going to Washington. I mean, Billy Jack to Jimmy Stewart is basically like Tom Selleck to Harrison Ford. <laughs> he's like screaming. He's grabbing the bag of like telegram slash yeah. bags. He's like freaking out. I mean, he could murder you. This oh. is not exactly the same tone. No, the filibuster, that's part of his filibuster scene. And it's hilarious. It's so <laughs> aggressive. It's so aggressive. Okay. But do you know who produced that film? Who? Frank Capra Jr. Oh my Frank goodness. Frank Capra Jr. gave his daddy's blessing to that movie. Just- yeah, Billy Jack. <laughs> I mean, even one of my favorite movies as a kid, because it was PG-13 of Eddie Murphy's, was uh, Distinguished Gentleman, which is a literally a Mr. Smith ripoff. And so, which leads me to ask the question, not only uh, did The Simpsons do it, but how many times have they done it? I mean, The Simpsons have done like full straight up episodes. In honor wow. of it, like absolute hardcore, like like there's a Simpsons episode where Krusty goes to Washington. There's one where Lisa goes to Washington. Like this might be the most major copying the template film I think the Simpsons have done so far. Mr. Jefferson, my name is Lisa Simpson, and I have a problem. I know your problem. The Lincoln Memorial was too crowded. Sorry, sir. It's just no one ever comes to see me. I don't blame them. I never did anything important. Just the Declaration of Independence, the Louisiana Purchase, the dumbwaiter. Uh, maybe I should be going. I caught you at a bad time. I actually pulled together a ton of clips just from one episode okay. uh, called Beyond Blunderdome. Okay. This is from uh, the late 90s. This is before Mel Gibson had his whole meltdown. Um, but basically the premise is that Mel Gibson wants to do a remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And so he does a test screening of it. By the way, he's a perfect person to be a candidate for that. It's really not that far of a leap. Exactly. In the the Simpsons episode, it's basically like, it's my follow-up to Braveheart. 
He fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever does. Because of one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. Boring. It's not boring. He's passionate about government. <laughs> At least the Jimmy Stewart version had that giant rabbit who ran the savings and loans. It gets great reviews on the test screening from everybody except Homer, who says it's boring. Now here's your biggest problem of all. The filibuster scene? That was Jimmy Stewart's favorite. And it was fine for the 1930s. The country was doing great back then. Everyone was into talking. But now, in whatever year this is, the audience wants action. So then Mel Gibson brings Homer to Hollywood, where they decide to give it, like, an action-packed, like, violent ending, where they end up, like, decapitating the president and blowing up the entire building. (laughs) I believe the senator has yielded the floor. (laughs) Yield this, Senator Payne. We impose some serious term limit. All in favor, say die. So they essentially just remade Billy Jack Goes to Washington. I mean, that's essentially what happened here. The, the Simpsons ripped off Billy Jack. I'm, I'm going out on a limb and saying it right here. But I mean, I do believe that this film is in our DNA. And it's like an Ouroboros, like it's folding in on itself. Because like, here's a clip from the American president that does mm-hmm. the same thing and even just like name checks Capra. I'm trying to savor the Capra-esque quality. He doesn't know what Capra has means. Yeah, I do. Frank Capra, great American director. It's a wonderful life. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Sydney Ellen Wade of Virginia, not him dead. By the way, the first AD on the American president Frank Capra the third. Wow. <laughs> These all are just coming. like remixing all of it. You know, Paul, on one of our very first episodes, we were lucky enough to have the awesome hosts of Yo! Is This Racist? Yes. We had Andrew T. We had Tawny Newsome. I loved having them on. And do you know they're about to celebrate a milestone anniversary? What's that? They're one thousandth episode. We just celebrated 25. They yes. have done a thousand. That's like 15 more. <laughs> yeah, we need to do a math episode just for you. No, but <laughs> they are the absolute greatest. Tony and Andrew are just brilliant. They're funny. They're smart. What they do on the show is they cover racism in the recent news, pop culture. They take burning questions from fan-submitted voicemails about your maybe racist coworkers, friends, and family members. They have the best guests ever and join them in celebrating a thousand episodes. That's just wow. crazy. They're gonna they're going all out for this. It's gonna be completely mental. And by the way, if you have not listened to the show, check it out because they have amazing people on the show like Jimmy O. Yang from Silicon Valley, uh, Nicole Byer, LeVar Burton, John Lovett. Uh, Oh, we like John Lovett. Oh, yeah, (laughs) we do indeed. You just heard him on our show uh, right here. Uh, It's going to be great. Uh, And this special episode has a ton of special guests like Carl Tart, Rhea Butcher, and more. You don't want to miss it. Subscribe and listen to Yo! Is This Racist on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Paul, we only have 1974 more episodes left. Wait, no, I have my math is wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry. Paul, we only have 974 episodes left ourselves. We need that math episode. So, Amy, we're talking a lot about politics today, and I figured it might be interesting to bring in someone who has a very interesting take on politics. Um, Our guest today is a screenwriter, but more importantly, a speechwriter and a podcaster. You might know him from his enormously successful podcast, Pod Save America, or his hilarious Love It or Leave It. Um, Please welcome John Lovett. So, John, why do you think people are kind of obsessed 
and repulsed by politics. Obviously, like right now, we live in this world where we're like, oh, I can't stand it. But at the same time, we make a lot of TV and film about it where we want to see the inside. And, you know, what, what do you think goes on there? Right now, it's hard to say that there's, is there anyone making truly great political drama, new political drama yeah. since Trump has become president? It's, yeah, because I feel like the thing that I was kind of blown away by with this movie is it came out in 1939, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and and all of a sudden people are still feeling the same way about the system. It's like, we're corrupt, we, you know, we, we need an honest man in there. And, and that to me is an interesting idea that's been around for that long. Well, I had sort of like twisted reaction to it, which was like, so the, 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 the movie is divorced of party and it's about insiders versus outsiders. And here comes this outsider who uh, wants to kind of shake up Washington and drain the swamp. Yeah. We, and then a bunch of fake news yeah. <laughs> gets in his Literally, way because I mean, he doesn't play by the Washington playbook. Yeah. You see where the Capra-esque thing came from. And it turned to me, what I was, I was thinking about while I'm watching this movie is, oh man, when you divorce politics from policy and you divorce it from partisanship and you divorce it from the actual stakes and you make it about a rube with a good heart trying to build a camp versus people out for themselves completely without any of the ideological stakes of politics, you have something that anybody can watch and view as a story for them. And that's good right. and bad, but that Capra-esque idea of what politics is is the fake, the reality show version of what politics is that I think in part gave people the idea that, oh, what we need is an outsider to come in and shake things up. Right. And you can look at the the West Wing comes from this. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the political drama we have come from uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I, so that I, have to, I will say that that is how I was feeling for the first hour. Right. And I, I texted a friend being like, I can't believe how sappy this is. And then within moments, the Saunders character says, I'm not that sappy. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm like, this fucker got me. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the same journey as this city girl from Baltimore, right. you know, couldn't believe it. And again, I think the thing that we were talking about when we were talking about it originally was like, I can't believe it's been around for this long, this kind of mentality. You know, it's like these people have not been to World War II. Right. There's no interstate highways. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like this is a different reality. Like when when Saunders says she's imagining the the West, right? The, yeah. the 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 plains and the mountains and the cows, and she's like, "Oh, I'm from Baltimore." Yeah. And it's this sin that she has, which is that she's never really she's gone from Baltimore to DC. Like that's the full range of what she's seen. And you do feel in the movie this idea that the real disconnect between rural people yeah. and city people that doesn't that we exploit now but doesn't exist in the same way. Well, but so what do you think happens to a Mr. Smith like after this movie? Like from this point on, like what have you seen happen to an idealist when they go to Washington and then keep staying there? Well, the movie I was thinking about was uh The Candidate with mm -hmm. Robert Redford, which is about a Mr. Smith-like figure who becomes a who you watch go from being a Mr. Smith to becoming a Senator Payne over the course of the movie and how someone goes through that change. 
you know, the, so he does this filibuster, and the whole point of the filibuster is to get public opinion on his side, which he fails to do. Yeah. He fails at it. There's, you know, they're roughing up boys. I, they, I mean, when they, they beat up those kids. <laughs> it's, it, the movie is it's so, it's so black and white. It's so funny. It's like, yeah, these uh, political bosses, uh, they're uh, beating up little boys, boy, little Boy Scouts handing out right. the news. His whole plan is to give a filibuster, get the truth out. They actually squelch the truth and make it so that the the public actually sends letters against him. And the only reason he wins the day after he faints is that he actually managed to tweak the conscience of his mentor, of this senator who who had made this the same compromise that Smith refuses to make. And you're watching this and you're thinking, okay, so – it actually wasn't about reaching the people. It was the luck of just barely getting through to one man. And right. I was watching this and thinking, well, what happens if that doesn't happen? He faints, is expelled, and goes back to the state, uh, a pariah. Right. <laughs> uh, who tried to stop some jobs programs. Right. <laughs> yeah, like that ending is cynical, too, because it's, it's just like – it, yeah, no, nothing has really changed. Well, the only the only way you can achieve change in this movie is for the guilty to confess. Well, right. in the real world, that never, ever happens. I mean, very, very rarely, right? Yeah. No one confesses. To, he got away with it. It worked. They were going to expel him the next moment. He yep. just had a pang of conscience, which, um, as we have seen recently, uh, all you need to do to uh, not feel that is kill that part of yourself. Yeah. And then once it's dead, you're actually <laughs> like all set. But do you think there is a is a truth to the fact that everyone ultimately gets like slightly corrupted in a sense that the even the most idealistic it's like there's certain things that I would imagine start to fade away it's harder when you're in a job that's that important too. Yeah, well what the movie does which we shouldn't do right. is connect awe and wonder and a sense of appreciation for the majesty of our system right. and understanding how the game is actually played. Like it is right. like those things are not the same. Like him coming to Washington and being awed by the Capitol Dome is then translated into he has principle. You want people who stop being wowed by the thing and but who still do have a sense and understand you need compromise and yeah. understand you're going to have to give a little to get a little and 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 maybe not get everything that you want and maybe play a little dirty to get something across the line right. and and maybe you stop looking up the at the Capitol dome like 20 years ago cuz you're a fucking person <laughs> and you can't be awed by the same thing again and again and again yeah. and that's not doesn't make you worse just cuz you're from a city right 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 movie frank like they're not they're not real Mr. Smith is not more of an American than Saunders and she doesn't right. become more of an American because she starts liking Smith. So yeah, there's a there's there is a version of politics which is the actual thing where people are not odd and some people are more principled than others and you want to be with the people who are more principled without without assume without being the kind of idealist that comes in all stripes that think you have to vote no on anything unless it's perfect. Right. Well, now that we are after the midterms, like we have just seen a whole bunch of new firsts. We've seen the first Native American congresswoman, the first Muslim congresswoman, the first lesbian mom in Congress, the first openly gay man elected as governor, the first female governors of South Dakota, Maine. That is a lot of new Mr. and Mrs. Smiths. Do you have any advice on what they do now? Like it's a huge question. Also, it's what does it mean to stick with your principles when you only control one house, when you want to have – a big debate inside of democratic politics around the direction of the party, both in terms of what's going to appeal to people and help win elections and also what's the right thing to do and how much you need to compromise. And I don't know what the answer is, but the, but you're not going to find it in 
Mr. Smith goes to <laughs> Washington. Well, but it's it's funny in the sense that you know we were talking in another podcast about how High Noon is kind of this movie that presidents really you know respond to and they'll watch it in the White House screening room. But isn't it interesting that like that movie is what presidents respond to and not something like uh, Mr. Smith? Westerns are basically a way of having a lawless place to play out your moral fantasies and your power fantasies because you don't have to worry about a city council meeting to decide on the zoning right. for whether or not you're allowed to <laughs> build a hotel. Yeah. You just shoot somebody. Yeah. It's why Disney movies have princes and princesses, princesses and never uh, parliaments. You right. know? <laughs> There's never like, you know, the, if you get, if the, the prince never puts your foot on the slipper right. and then you go before parliament. Yeah, uh, to find out if you can become prime minister. It's because it's easier and cleaner and and more rewarding to imagine a place where somebody has absolute power. And and you know, you look at Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's 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 named after him. He's a passenger in yeah. this movie. Uh, the the more to me, I'm like when I was I, the movie to me becomes more interesting when you start to understand a bit more about pain and when you start to understand a bit more about. Saunders, because these are adults. Yeah, right. <laughs> these are adults who have made choices. Uh, 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 Payne makes that argument to Smith and says, "Yes, I made the compromise twenty years ago, but I've done a thousand good things. I've done a thousand good things. That's my justification. Right. And it would have been someone else, but it's me. And that's the thing he told himself, and that's the thing a lot of people tell themselves. My conscience is a white wall, and yeah, there's a little bit of black paint over there, and there's a little bit of black paint over there, and there's a little bit of black paint over there. But after a while, you're no longer looking at a white wall with a few black spotches. You're looking at a black wall right. with a few bits of white coming through. And it's like, where's where's the difference? When, when did you put too much paint on the wall, and you can no longer see the see the see see what you've actually done? But I am curious, like... As somebody who has such a background in writing speeches, like what would your strategy be if you had to give a last-minute filibuster? I'm going to avoid answering your question by talking about another movie. <laughs> they filibuster my question I'm gonna by talking about another movie? So The American President, right? which I love, sure. which Sorkin clearly influenced by Capra. In the movie The American President, there's a gun bill and there's an environmental bill and he's compromising on one to get the other and it screws up his relationship somehow, the details of which I don't remember anymore. It involves DuPont Circle and the traffic there, whatever. But if you remember how it culminates, his approval rating is dropping and then he goes into that briefing room and he gives a speech in that briefing room and he says, you know, my name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. And he defends his girlfriend and he defends the ACLU and he defends being a liberal and he pulls his gun bill and then he says he's going to vote for the the, 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 the environmental bill and he's back and he walks off. And that's it. Problem yep. solved. Well, in, in the actual world of politics, there's a few headlines the next day that says uh, President Shepard defends girlfriend uh, – uh, Surrenders on gun bill. <laughs> Says he is the right. president. Right. <laughs> it doesn't solve anything. Right. Like maybe he gets a two, two or three point bump, but like Andrew Rumson, his villain, still out there coming for him. <laughs> speeches are very, very important, but in movies, speeches solve problems. In the real world, they very rarely do. They can help. It's it's like what how do you how do you take the good in saying, look. This was supposed to be a government of the people. Here's somebody who's not a political professional coming from home with good intentions to try to do good work, and he's and he is stymied by a broken system. And how do you take that and and actually apply it? And also, by the way, it's like it's made in 1939. You know, World War II is coming. Right. There's a there's incredible amounts of fear and anxiety in the country. Uh, We're in a period of 
economic depression. I mean, it's just, it's a dark time in the world. And so you understand why there's a seemingly interminable montage of a bell that says, live of the Liberty Bell, which isn't even in Is that from Philly? I'm not sure. (laughs) And you're showing it's a flag waving, then a monument, and then Jefferson, and then (laughs) then you're back to Mr. Smith, and then he's on a bus. (laughs) A senator took a bus? Uh. He's really not from here. (laughs) But uh, how do you take that idea and apply it in a way that actually has teeth in a world in which there are ideologies and there are – these are not equivalent and a a person without experience coming to, uh, you know – enrich corporate interest by claiming that the problem is immigrants and <laughs> and uh, brown people versus somebody who's actually trying to take on some of the structural problems in our country. Like, there is a difference. That does matter. It yeah. doesn't matter in this world of this movie, but it does matter. Well, I think we have said it all. Uh, make sure you check out Love It or Leave It every single week. It's like a funny version of the week's news, which is something that we desperately need, I think, at the end of every week. I love it or leave it and Pod Save America. Check out their shows on HBO, which actually were great too. So thank you, John Lovett. Uh, Amy, uh, you know, it looks like this film is beloved. Are there any negative reviews? You mean besides people who aren't elected members of the government at the time? Yes. Yes. Here's one from Otis Ferguson at the New Republic. This is what he wrote in November of 1939, interview he called Mr. Capra Goes Someplace. He said, Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is going to be the big movie explosion of the year, and reviewers are going to think twice and think sourly before they'll want to put it down for the clumsy and irritating thing that it is. It is a mixture of tough factual patter about congressional cloakrooms and pressure groups and a naive but shameless hoorah for the American relic. And then he goes on to say, but where is director Capra? He has started to make movies about themes instead of people. He's found out about the idea of thought, and now he's going up into the clouds to think. And from now on, his continued box office triumph and the air up there being what they are, he is a sure thing to stay banking checks, reading variety, and occasionally getting overcast and raining on us. (laughs) Oh, and he calls the opening montage, he calls it a montagasm. Oh, boy. Well, I know. It's a little racy for 1939. Yeah, wow. Very. Uh, but he says the main surviving idea is that the one one scout leader who knows the Gettysburg Address by heart wouldn't possibly be hired to mow your lawn. I love it. All right. So, Amy, here we go. It's number 26 on the AFI list. It's number 148 on the IMDb list. It's number five on the AFI's most inspiring movies of all time. Nominated for 11 Oscars, Best Writing, and picture and actor and supporting actor and director and everything. It's it's getting a bunch of them. Does this movie belong on the AFI top 100 list? I really like this movie. I mean, we've got a lot of capper on this movie. So yeah. this is where I have to do my soul searching and say me railing against like the over predominance of certain directors on this list. Do I want this movie over like it happened one night over right. It's a Wonderful Life? I mean, this is where I have to look at my own biases because right. I do really, really enjoy this movie so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for me, it's a no-brainer because, you know, it's one of those movies, and we talked about this a lot. This one holds up. This is a version of a film that they're still making to this day, but this one feels just as alive as it did then, as it does now. And I feel like that's the thing that I always get into a fight with. I don't think it belongs. If it, it doesn't feel the same way anymore, I don't think it belongs on the list or high up on the list. But if it does, then it definitely does. Because, I mean, yeah, it, it felt to me like a very spiritual successor to, you know, Citizen King, which I said. I, I don't know. They feel very important, like Americana films. They do. I mean, I don't have as much of a problem with, like, a time capsule thing. Because right. I think time capsules are also important. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think this movie is still really, really vibrant in so many ways. So yeah, I'm happy with it staying. Do you like its place? 26? 26? Yeah, it moved up slightly, I think, right? From mm-hmm. like the 97 list. I, I believe think it was like so, yeah. 28 or 29, then it bumped up a tiny bit. If I have any reservation, it really is because here I can't be like, y'all don't get all these De Niro films on the list right. and be like, but I still get a bunch of Jimmy Stewart. That's not cool. Right, I hear you. I, I like that you're self-policing. I, I, I wouldn't mind it if it's in the top 20. Whoa, you want to move it up? Yeah, I do. I just think it's, for all the reasons I've been talking about here, I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but I feel like this is a movie that informed more movies after it than any film that we've really done besides like 2001 and and Citizen Kane and, and, and what we've seen, like that really have like a stamp. And, and so that's why I think this movie is incredibly important. Well, then I want to end on this note because we started this episode with people impersonating Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played a little bit of somebody impersonating yeah. Jimmy Stewart. I think you and I have both kind of badly imitated Jimmy Stewart yeah, during the episode of this. Well, at the um, in the 70s, uh, in 1978, there was a roast of Jimmy Stewart. Everybody got up and made fun of Jimmy Stewart's voice. Mm-hmm. And then Orson Welles got up and he said this, which I think is really beautiful. I'm the only actor on this podium who has not attempted to imitate you, Jimmy, because in my view, that's all we can do. Oh, oh. Whoa, look at that. I love it. Classy. Well, shall we roll to see what next week is? Yes, let's check out what the die has in store for us next. I cannot wait. Okay, well, here we go. All right. Ooh, give us something good, little die. Oh, it's all the way coming to you. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Taking a look. It is 91. What is that, Amy? So, oh, Sophie's Choice. Ooh. Ooh, okay. All right. I don't know what this movie is about. I've never seen this movie. You I know, know it's Sophie's depressing. I just know it's depressing. I know it's a terrible choice. That's all I know. I know when people say it's a real Sophie's Choice, it's a bad choice. Okay, Paul, you don't know what the Sophie's Choice is? Okay, well then, you know what? Um, I won't tell you. I won't tell you. Instead, let's give our listeners a very hard Sophie's Choice uh, as a call-in. Okay. This is the most brutal version I can think of that has nothing to do with the movie. It won't spoil it, which is you have to pick one of these two directors to stay on the AFI list. And the other one will be stricken from the AFI list. Hard choice. And I will narrow your choices down to these two people, Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese. Wow. That's your Sophie's choice who gets stricken from the list. Make your pick, make your case, and make a call at the number 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 with your brutal Sophie's Choice. All right, so that brings us to the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend. We love to hear more people. We love friends. (laughs) And uh, you can also rate and review us on iTunes. Um, And if you're just starting right now with the show, uh, go back and check out some of our past episodes. We have 25 of them. That's so many episodes. And visit our website at unspoolpod.com. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week for Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice. Hey. 
Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Jazos. (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.